It's good to be with you here this Sunday. Um, I have to say, uh, it's like a different world up here than down in New York City where I live. Aslan has obviously arrived in New York City, but hasn't made it up to Westchester. Uh, we have maybe two inches of snow left on the ground, and it's rapidly melting. And I arrived here, and I thought, oh, it's winter again. Um, and it's, because I'm not living here, beautiful. <laughs> um, it, but it's always good to see you and even to enjoy the snow as I'm coming up. Um, over the last month, um, University Christian Fellowship here in New York and New Jersey have been praying. Um, they've been praying that God would help the students on campus um, where we're currently at reach every corner of every campus. And so over the last uh, 30 or so days, they've been praying consistently, would you launch new ministries and new Bible studies, Lord, and would you help us reach new campuses? And so I wanted to give you a quick update, um, in part because of what Barbara shared, but also in part because it undergirds so much of what happens in Romans. Um, We were able to see 59 new Bible studies started in the month of, um, I guess, February. I was trying to remember what month I was in. Uh, In the month of February, so we've been trying to launch new Bible studies because we know the fastest way both to grow and to see new Christians come to faith is usually to start something new. And so by starting these new Bible studies, we're hoping that we'll see new students come to faith. And on three different campuses, we've had um, either administrators or students call us to say, would you help us start an intervarsity ministry here on this campus. So just a week ago, they had um, their first meetings at York College. Um, and intervarsity had been there in the 70s, early 80s, but the work there had ceased, and so we're beginning work there again. And what I love about these kind of stories is that it reminds us, like the stories that Barbara told, the gospel is at work, right? The gospel is moving forward. And there are two things I want to do as we think about the way the gospel is moving forward, one of which is um, to do a quick um, plug in the middle of the sermon, which is a little inappropriate. Um, InterVarsity every three years sponsors the Urbana Student Missions Conference. Um, th- over 300,000 students have heard God's call to global mission and been invited to find their place and part in it. The next Urbana is coming up this December, and registration begins March 4th. And there's a significantly discounted rate if students register before June. And I happen to notice in the prayer bulletin there are at least 16 college students involved here at CBC, and I'd love to have them there. Um, It's an unparalleled opportunity to hear both what God is doing in the world, what God says about the world in his word, and to discern what your place is in in it. And for most college students, um, deciding now to go helps them both raise the funds, save the money, and put time in their schedule to actually get there. So if you know college students here at the congregation or anywhere, we would love them to come. The other story about the power of the gospel um, is what happened at Newark uh, Rutgers just uh, this past week. As you often do at InterVarsity Chapters, you invite students to give their testimonies to tell a little bit about God's work in them. Um, How do they come to faith? What is God doing? Because it's good training. The more comfortably we can talk about what God is doing to people who already believe, the more comfortable it is to talk to anybody about that. And also, it's just a good thing to do because it encourages all of us. So I know one of the sweetest moments of worship for me this morning was hearing the stories that Barbara told. Um, As wonderful as hymns are and hearing the word read, something about seeing God at work in front of you changes everything. So uh, Janet was asked to share her testimony, and so the day before she was to do that, the InterVarsity staff worker called and said, hey, um, 
let's walk through what you're going to share. How did you meet Jesus and how is it shaping you today? And as the student, as Janet began to share her story, um, she kept sharing it and all of a sudden Janet stopped about two-thirds of the way through that conversation as she was preparing and said, you know, I've really struggled with this part because um, I don't know that I ever decided to become a Christian. And it's the odd thing about doing evangelism training or training people to give their testimonies, how frequently in our university chapters, in the middle of evangelism training, as they hear the gospel presented, students will say, oh, is that what it's about? And so very frequently for us, in the middle of evangelism training, a student will come to faith. Uh, actually, almost inevitably on campus, in the middle of attending voluntary evangelism training. <laughs> Students who are being trained in evangelism discover they don't yet know Jesus, and they give their lives to him. And so for Janet, the same thing happened. She was all ready to give her testimony. She had volunteered to give it, and as she gave, began to prepare to give it, she realized she really didn't know Jesus. And the staff worker said, well, you know, what do you mean? And she said, well, I grew up at church. I've always gone to church. I've gone to prayer meetings. I've gone to Bible studies. I show up at youth group events. I've joined university as a college student when I don't have to. And as I've hung out with you all and as I am now sharing my story, I realized I never decided to follow him. I just did it because I grew up that way. And like any good university staff worker, they realize, Look, the door's opening. And they said, well, would you like to take care of that right now? And she said, what do you mean? Well, you could decide to follow him right now, and that could be part of your testimony tomorrow. And Janet said, that makes a lot of sense. Tell me what I need to do. And so on the phone, as she was being prepped to give her testimony, uh, she actually developed a real testimony of how um, after years of being a good religious person, she finally discovered who Jesus was and embraced that. And it's that kind of experience, I think, that drives what Paul is aiming at in the passage that we have today um, in Romans. As you'll, if you remember last week, um, Dick talked about um, this Gentile-Jewish divide that um, defined reality for the Jews, but in fact was actually causing some conflict in the Roman church and definitely had caused a lot of conflict in the Galatian church. And there was this kind of you know, we grew up religious group in the Roman church, which was uh, the Jewish groups. And then we grew up kind of in the world and have converted. And now we know Jesus, uh, who were the Gentiles um, in the Roman church. And there was tension. And so Paul writes the letter um, to the Romans, in part to announce his intention to go visit, but in part to try to solve how do you deal with this division in the church. And um, in chapters um, one and two, part of what he's saying is, look, do any of you think you're particularly privileged before God, that we don't have a way to be unified. And he says, as Dick reminded us last week, right, um, for the Gentiles, the reality is you all were so lost before you discovered who Jesus was. You'd given up everything you could have possibly understood about who God was. Even if you did not have the Torah, even if you did not have what we now call the Old Testament, you still had nature declaring his glory, right? Fairest Lord Jesus, if you, if you look around you and are not moved to worship something bigger and more magnificent and transcendent than yourself, if you, just by the ways that our society runs, don't attempt to love your neighbor, care for your children, and honor one another, you gave all of that up. 
And rather than worshiping a God who at least you could apprehend in some way, you worshiped the things that you could control. You ended up just basically worshiping yourselves. And it led you down terrible paths. And it moves you from worshiping yourself to just satisfying yourself in the end, right? Um, that always leads to sin. And at this point in the letter, the Jewish listeners of the audience are going, that's so right. <laughs> I mean, you just look at Rome, right? Oh, you people. And then Paul turns to the Jewish believers. And he says, now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is um, superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide to the blind, um, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have the law, so you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, right? He's saying, look, right now, so you Jews and us, right, you know you worship well. You actually rely on the law, God's revelation to you. And you boast in God because you know he's good, he's magnificent, he's loving, he's merciful, and everybody in the audience who's Jewish is going, yes! Right? I grew up and I know how God has revealed himself. And I've honored and have delighted in him. And he goes, look, not only that, you've lived ethically because you know his will and you approve what's good. You actually know what you're supposed to do, unlike those crazy heathen people. Not only do you worship well because you rely on the law and you boast in God and you live ethically, but you evangelize faithfully and you theologize correctly, right? You're a guide to the blind. You're bringing light to those who are in dark darkness. Um, you're an instructor to infants because they're just children out there morally. Um, and they don't know the knowledge or truth. You thought all the right things, right? You do all the right things, and you say all the right things. And Paul goes, right, isn't that who we are as Jews who follow Jesus now? And you think at that point in the congregation, all of the non-Jewish Christians are like, man, they're so smug. And all the Jewish Christians are thinking, yeah, right? That's exactly who we are. And right, that's a, that's a glorious inheritance to worship well because you know how God has revealed himself and you delight in him and to live ethically and appropriately and morally and then to share your faith well and actually speak truth well. And then Paul goes on to say in verse 21, so if you then who teach others, do, do you not teach yourselves? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who uh, say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Ugh, right? I mean, Paul seems to say, you know everything. You've been doing all the right things, and you say all the right things, and you can't stop yourselves from still doing the wrong things. You steal, even though you know you shouldn't be stealing. You commit adultery, even though you know you shouldn't be committing adultery. You rob temples, even though you know you shouldn't. You're doing the very things that you teach other people not to do through the law. Now, for the Jews in the audience, some of them might be thinking, you know, I, I haven't stolen anything recently. 
I'm reasonably quite moral, but I suspect underlying some of what Paul's thinking about is, do you remember what our Lord and Savior has already taught us? It's not just, did you, did you physically take something from someone, but did you covet something of somebody else's? And I suspect the Jews in the audience are like, well, you know, I was thinking about that toga that other guy was wearing the other day. <laughs> I haven't slept with anybody who I'm not married to, the Jew who's a faithful follower of Jesus might be saying, and then all of a sudden the words from the Sermon on the Mount come back to you. But I probably let that, my glance linger a little too long the other day. And Jesus said, if I even lust in my heart, I've already committed adultery. And maybe I haven't indeed been worshiping these idols, but I have stolen from the temple. I have not given to God with an open heart. I've played games with him. And Paul brings it home and says, look, even though you know all the right things, even though you say all the right things, even though you often do the right things, the lack of wholeness in your life, the, your inability to fully live out all that you know to be true is so obvious to the people around us that God is actually dishonored. Gentiles are mocking God because of the hypocrisy that he sees in you. And at this point in the audience, the patrons are like, yeah. And the Jewish Christians are probably slinking in their seats a little bit more. And then Paul goes on and he says, look, it's not only that you cannot do the things that you know to do, but in fact, the very mark of the covenant among you isn't enough to save you. Right? And that's where he goes in verse 25. Circumcision, he says, has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. Now, what's clear, right, is circumcision um, was a sign of grace in the life of the Jewish people. The Jewish people didn't deserve to be circumcised. Nobody was actually seeking it out um, as a, a huge benefit, certainly not converts to Judaism, but it was a sign for the Jewish people that God had chosen them. And God had, was very clear in the Old Testament to remind them, did I choose you because you were particularly large or powerful? No. Did I choose you because you were particularly righteous or faithful in following me? And I suspect he thought of, he probably started naming, let's begin with Adam and go our way down through your ancestors. No. Did I choose you because you were unusually influential. No, I had to save you out of Egypt because you were an enslaved people, right? You were a pathetic, lost group of people whose ancestors wandering around Mesopotamia. I chose you because I loved you. I chose you out of just a sheer act of grace. I chose you to be mine because I just chose you and have given my heart to you and have chosen to let you. So circumcision was God's gift to Abraham and his descendants, not as an act of, I, you, this is how you're going to earn favor with me, because um, clearly you're incapable of doing so. Circumcision was instead the way that Abraham's family marked in their bodies what God had done in their hearts, which was, you now belong to me, and you're offering yourself up to me. Um, it was a sign of the covenant of grace that God was offering them. Right? Israel wasn't saved because of their circumcision, but it was a sign that God had elected them and had chosen them, and it reflected their response to God to say, you've chosen me and I accept. It demonstrated their membership in the covenant community. 
And so for a lot of Jews, what they say is, look, okay, I might not be doing everything right, but I've been circumcised. I belong to the covenant community. I've been accepted by God's grace. And Paul goes on then to say this. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you become as though you did, have not been circumcised. If those who have not been circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code in circumcision, are a lawbreaker. What Paul seems to be saying here is, look, even though you bear in your body a mark that you belong to this covenant community that God has established by his grace, you seem unable to live consistently with your status as members of this covenant community. In fact, people who have not been circumcised, who don't bear that physical mark of belonging to the covenant community, by their actions demonstrate how much more aligned they are with the covenant community that God intends to create than your life does. This mark that you seem to have so much confidence in means nothing. And so if you're a Jewish Christian in the audience, you're really stuck now, aren't you, right? Neither as an observer of the law nor as a member of this covenant community am I able to demonstrate my superiority to those Gentiles who seem to be sitting in the audience. In fact, what Paul seems to be indicating so clearly to the Jews is you don't have a leg to stand on. Now, this would be um, fascinating church history Except for, I think about that student, Janet, from Rutgers, Newark, who so faithfully attended church, who so religiously was involved in Bible study, who was so committed in her mind to the practices of the people of Jesus, she actually volunteered to give a testimony in front of her friends this past week, and who, when actually you dug down, you started to realize, and she realized she didn't know Jesus at all. It made me wonder about my own life. I try to worship well. I sing enthusiastically. I think about the words I'm singing. I try to actually pray and pray thoughtfully and um, to align my heart around it. I even try to play, pray reasonably regularly. I do my best to live ethically and morally. When given opportunities, I try to evangelize and share my faith. In fact, I'm paid to do that, so it's even easier than for most of us. And certainly, I like to theologize rightly. I like reading books about Jesus written by people who are faithful. Um, but I consistently still find myself unable to live in such a way that it's convincing to myself and to the people around me that the Holy Spirit is so deeply working in my life that I'm a person of the resurrection. That I, in fact, cannot stop myself from sinning. Not only can I not stop myself, I continue to plan how I can sin and sin more thoroughly and deeply and broadly um, than I even like to admit. And the way I know that is if even I'm unaware of it, I can just watch the effects of the sin that I commit in the life of my wife and of my children because they reflect it to me faster than anybody else. And unfortunately, I work with professionally Christian people around me, and so they're quick to notice it as well. And the more I try to pray and worship and theologize, theologize appropriately, the more and more clear that my half-hearted attempts to defend myself and protect myself from that knowledge are less and less convincing. 
In fact, um, by working on college and university campuses, it's clearer and clearer to me that often the church, as deeply as it tries to worship appropriately and act morally and speak faithfully and evangelize thoroughly, is often the greatest hindrance to people coming to faith. Um, in the last 15 or so years, as I do campus evangelism, almost never does a question about the resurrection um, come up. Nobody asks about, did, is there a historical Jesus? The questions all revolve around two issues. How do I understand the pain in my own life? And can you explain how Jesus could possibly be true given the people who claim to follow him? I look at my own life and the life of the church, and I feel myself um, addressed by Paul when he says, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles, among those who do not yet know because of you. And I may participate in the signs of grace and participate in being part of the covenant community by taking communion, by having undergone baptism. Um, but if I'm honest, I still don't live consistently with that covenant membership status. I think of the ways as I walk through um, the subways in New York City, and rather than engaging with people who are lost, hurting, or um, poverty-stricken, it's easier for me to put on my headphones, avert my eyes, and keep on walking. And I have a small excuse, I need to get back to relieve childcare because I have a limited time I can be there. But there's a hardness of heart and a certain lack of compassion that's pretty convicting to me day by day and I'm not sure I always act on it appropriately. I think of the ways that I engage things in the world around me um, beyond issues of poverty and justice um, <coughs> are the choices that I make as a consumer as a voter, as somebody who pays attention to the news, reflective of God's values or just values about keeping myself secure, keeping my bank account a little bit more full, uh, keeping my family safe. I ask questions about, even though I'm paid to evangelize to college students, how bold or clear am I to my neighbors in my apartment building, to the people I meet on the streets? I think about the ways that it's a struggle to forgive my wife on a daily basis in the small casual interactions because after a big fight it's easy to say I'm sorry I forgive you but it's those small paper cuts of living together which create a different kind of um, whole body scar tissue that's both harder to acknowledge and harder to give forgiveness and then certainly harder to recognize that I need to ask for forgiveness. I ask myself how my children encounter me as a person of grace or is it a person who's so thoroughly consumed with their own schedule that I'm constantly rushing them to the next thing and barking at them rather than loving them. And I realize that's not just a type A personality issue. It's a person who's um, lost track of what it means to be part of an economy of grace, right? To treat everybody around me as people created in God's image, not merely barriers to getting to the next thing I need to do reducing them to things and problems. The challenge of Paul's conversation with the Jews all of a sudden as I was both preparing for the sermon and as I've been spending some time in prayer is that um, he speaks not just to an audience who is 2,000 years in the past, but he speaks and convicts me uh, desperately and dangerously as well. In fact, even though I'm not a Jew by birth, 
as I read this passage, growing up as churchy as I have. Um, the greater challenge is I need to identify with the Jews in this passage who know all the right things, who try to do all the right things, who say all the right things, but yet I cannot live in such a way to glorify and please God. And that day by day, the life that I live um, contradicts the testimony I want to proclaim. The glorious and terrible truth, right, in Paul's letter to the Romans up until this point is that whether you're a Gentile or a Jew, whether you're religious and churchy or fully culturally engaged and sophisticated as um, the non-Jewish pagans who are now Christians must have felt themselves to be, is um, we're still desperately sinners. And the good news, then, as you push toward Romans, is that we're free to acknowledge it has nothing to do with our own work. No pure, no religious observance will be sufficient for us to be changed. And we come to God rather desperate. And maybe that's one of the good news pieces of sharing unfinished stories is that even as we share other people's unfinished stories, it gives us space and grace to acknowledge we ourselves are pretty unfinished stories in this process of being redeemed by Jesus. And the more we, were able, if the, the more we would be able to tell that story about ourselves to one another, perhaps, we would be given an opportunity to meet each other in a very different place. Similarly, if the visible participation in the covenant community isn't enough to save me and thoroughly transform me, then what it reminds me is um, there's no privilege attached to either the longevity of my religious practices, um, nor particularly any distinction like that which matters to God in the end. In the end, it binds me together with the body of Christ in a way that's very different from just sharing physical communion with each other. Um, one of the implications, of course, is if the unique religious status of the Jewish people as the chosen people wasn't enough, then at least for the people of Rome, what Paul seems to be intimating now and will be making clearer and clearer as that book goes on, there's no cause for division in this body. None of you are more special or valuable to God because none of you could be any less valuable and important to him than you already are. That means for any one congregation, as he's speaking to the Roman church, you belong together. You're, the unity that you experience is actually grounded on God's thorough and uncompromising love for all of you, and none of you have a more privileged status than him, uh, than the other. It's one of the things I love most about this church. Um, I love the humility uh, with which the pastors have led for so many years. I, I love the, I, I'm always startled by the fact that how many, how um, the pattern in this church has been uh, we honor our pastor as somebody who's leading us and bringing God's word to us, and uh, the pulpit is shared so freely and so openly because this congregation is convinced that God's word comes um, broadly from the body of Christ. And it's a pattern that, um, you know, most pastors protect their pulpit pretty, uh, pretty significantly. Um, but it also means 
beyond this congregation that there's a unity in the body of Christ that we have to live out, that racial reconciliation isn't just a good idea or something which is politically convenient, but actually demanded of us um, as a testimony to what God is doing. And um, in InterVarsity, we're about to have our multi-ethnic staff conference. Um, I'm leaving for it on Tuesday. Sam Barquette is going to be honored that first night for his contributions to shaping InterVarsity's work that way. Um, but part of our ongoing conversation since the Ferguson con uh, controversy and the Eric Garner case um, early this past fall was how on campus does the reality of racial reconciliation continue to press us into more deep engagement around multi-ethnic issues and how does um, justice and uh, reconciliation, acknowledging sin and embracing unity need to transform college and university campuses both as um, a requirement of what God is doing but also as a witness to who God is making us to be. If neither Jew nor Gentile has standing before God because the Gentiles have given up the little they know about God and have ended up choosing to worship themselves and enter into morality, and if the Jews have all this knowledge of God but still seem fundamentally to be unable to be changed, you end up where Paul ends with this passage of verses 20, um, 28 and 29. A person is not a Jew who is only one outwardly, nor circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew, right, a faithful follower of God um, who is one who is one inwardly. And circumcision is a circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. That it's the inward transformation that God is really desiring that is required for us to be the kind of people that God desires us to be, not just individually but corporately. And that's why Paul ends um, the larger section of scripture that um, was embedded in what we're looking at today with verses um, 9 through 20 of chapter 3. What then shall we conclude, Paul says, do we have any advantage? Do any of us have an advantage? Not at all. We have already made... Um, the charge, sorry, the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, there's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues are practic practiced deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable before God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. The terrible truth, of course, in this passage is it leaves none of us innocent. It leaves none of us unaware of our own guilt. And it's probably then most appropriate then on a Sunday like this where that's the message for us to end the service coming to the communion table. Because that's precisely what the communion table reminds us every month when we come to it. Not one of us is righteous. Not one of us could possibly live so sufficiently, um, perfectly, that God would go... <laughs> Jesus didn't have to die. You can come right on in. In fact, one of the foundations of unity 
for you at Community Bible Church and for the entire Christian fellowship as it's spread out through time and space is our shared acknowledgement of our failure. Our common recognition that we continue to struggle with sin and will continue to struggle with sin until Jesus Christ returns. And it's on that very low place that we meet one another, which is an incredibly freeing place. Because it's not by our prayerfulness in which we have our unity. I'm so exalted in my prayer. I pray for hours at a time, don't you? Let's meet there. It's not by the incredible generosity of our spirit which we meet each other, though admittedly here at this church, you're gracious to one another and care for one another, and that's a blessing. But occasionally we'll fail. It's not by the holiness where we look at the world and go, oh, we so agree how terrible it is out there, how wonderful it is in here, where we meet together is, I am failing. And you're failing, and there's no need to pretend that it's otherwise. Thanks be to God. I can struggle and fail before you, and I will be reminded by you. Come to this table. Come remind yourself of what Christ has accomplished on your behalf and in your place so that you have no doubt and no worry that you do not belong here. There is nothing so terrible that you could possibly do that would be more terrible than what I've already done in my heart. And there's nothing so terrible that I could imagine or that you could accomplish that Christ does not stand. Look at it, and as we offer it to him, it says, I will take it myself. Come, eat with me. Drink of me. Let's be one together. Not out of the perfection of our life, not just out of our joy, but of our deep sense of failure. So that from the heights to the depths, right? From the far edges to the very center, Christ binds us together. And that there's no shame, there's no fear, and there's no guilt. But there's welcome. Because we know how desperately we need Jesus. And we know how freely he offers himself. Let me pray for us. Lord, I'm grateful that um, you do not hedge and you do not hide um, how desperately we need you. That scripture is largely more a story of people's failures before you than of their triumphs. That our testimonies in the end um, are not about our moral resoluteness, but of our desperate need for your mercy and of your incredible, unfailing generosity in offering it. So meet us, Lord, as we acknowledge our sin, as we ask for your mercy, and then we are reminded as we come to this table that you offer it freely, graciously, lovingly, never hiding the truth from us, but extending grace to us. To you be the honor and glory forever. Amen.